Thank you, Morris. Let me add my welcome to Morris's. If you're um, here visiting or you're here for the very first time, a very warm welcome to you. My name's Steve. I'm the pastor of the church here. And you find us in a series in 2 Samuel. And we have arrived at chapter 14 after a short break for a couple of weeks uh, in John's Gospel. Now, if you've been with us through the series, given all that we've seen in the previous chapters of 2 Samuel, you might be tempted to think, oh, brilliant. At least this seems like a slightly easier chapter. Nobody is killing anybody in this chapter, at least. But I think the more I've studied uh, chapter 14 over this week, I think I've become more and more convinced that chapter 14, just like the previous chapters, is a warning passage. It's a warning passage. And it's a warning not so much this time about the sinfulness of human wickedness, but a warning this time on the twistedness of human wisdom. So uh, kind of the wisdom that lies behind uh, 2 Samuel 14. You see it in loads of different ways. It's this idea that, that we can conquer the world, that we can accomplish our own plans, that we can plot and scheme and get what we want. It's a, it's a wisdom that's twisted and it's fueled by pride and it's ignorant of God and his ways. Now, I want to show you that um, in a moment, but what I want us to do first is just take a quick run through the story. So, uh, have a look at the, the passage, and let me uh, bomb through it with you, and uh, we can try and get the story straight in our mind. Absalom, you may remember, has killed his brother Amnon for attacking his sister Tamar. It was a premeditated attack. It was carefully planned and executed by Absalom and his servants. Uh, but as the rest of David's sons run back to Jerusalem and flee to try and uh, escape Absalom, Absalom runs to the north, to his grandfather's house just over the northern border of Israel. Now, in verse 1 of our passage this morning, Joab, the commander of David's army, knows that David is still thinking about Absalom three years on. It's a little tricky to understand exactly what's happening, but I don't think the sense so much is that David's heart is is longing for Absalom to come back in a kind of, I desire him to come back. I'm not sure that's really what it quite means at the end of chapter 13, and you might have got a footnote that suggests some uncertainty about the word translated longing. I think really more the sense here is that David can't get this out of his mind. There's a sadness at what's become of his family. And in the passage, Joab takes the role of fixer. Oh, I'm going to sort this out. On behalf of the king, he takes the matter into his own hands, coming up with a, a plot or a plan to sort the problem out. So he takes this uh, so-called wise woman from Tekoa and brings her to speak to the king and sets her up with a story and an outfit as well. Now, Tekoa is south of Bethlehem, so it's far enough away for her to get there reasonably easily, but it's far enough away for David not to know that her story is not true. This nameless woman comes and speaks to David and in a sense, that's not unusual. The king's court is the, this is the highest court of the land. If something can't be decided by local judges, uh, you come and bring it to the king, and he will give the verdict. The woman's story, though, is particularly complex, isn't it? She's got a dead husband. She's got two sons, uh, one who's killed the other in a crime of passion and anger in the fields. Now, justice demands that the murderer be put to death for his crime. And that's what the local leaders are responsible for doing. And in verse 7, you're told that the whole clan have risen up uh, to administer that kind of justice. But clearly that would leave the woman in a, in a perilous position. She'd have no heir, no protector, no family. Her husband would have no name. Essentially, she'd be destitute. 
Now, David listens to the woman's case, tells her in verse 8, I'm going to take some time to think about it, leave, and I will give word about what should happen. Of course, there is no son, is there? And there's no desperate widow. So she presses him further for an immediate answer, which is what she wants in verse 9. So much so that David is led to give his verdict, telling her that her son will not die and that her son has the protection of the king. He repeats that point twice, just to make it really super clear to her. But even then, David's answer is clearly not enough for verse 12. The woman has a further point to make. And this is where her agenda becomes visible, isn't it? She asks the king uh, why he would protect her unknown son from justice, whilst also not bringing back Absalom from his banishment north of the kingdom. Now, she's been super clever here, isn't she? And this is a really good point. It even sounds a little bit like the story of Cain and Abel, where God didn't enact the death penalty against Cain for king killing Abel, but instead put a mark on him so that no one could touch him, and we'll consider that more in a moment. But however clever the story, if you look down at verse 19, David sees right through it, doesn't he? He sees that Joab is pulling the strings in verse 19. He knows what's happening, so much so that in verse 20, she tells him that he has the wisdom of an angel. Before in verse 21, David is speaking to Joab, saying, okay, bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. On one condition, he doesn't see my face. So Joab brings Absalom back to Jerusalem, and everything seems to go okay for a while, but not for that long. Absalom is not happy. Why is he not happy? Well, because he's not allowed access to the court in Jerusalem. He's not um, allowed access to the king's presence. So he sends for Joab and tells him, I'm not happy. Joab doesn't listen to him. So what do you do when someone won't listen to you? Well, you set their field on fire, don't you? That's exactly what you do, right? So he sets his field on fire, and that gets his attention like it would. And so Joab comes to see him, and he's asked whether uh, he will send him into David's presence. And that's what happens, isn't it, at the end of the chapter, and David kisses him and is seemingly reconciled uh, with his oldest son and heir to the throne. And that's the, the chapter in a nutshell. And in a way, as you read it, you might think, oh, this is good, isn't it? Absalom appears to be reunited with the king. The family seems like it might be stable again. And perhaps that's what Joab is thinking right now in the story. But I don't think that's what's happening here. I don't think that's what we're supposed to see. I think that the story hangs around the word wisdom. The woman from Tekoa is introduced in verse 2 as being a wise woman. And the wisdom of David gets mentioned twice in verse 20. But the point is it's, it's not all real wisdom here. There's a fake wisdom, a twisted kind of wisdom here. A wisdom that, like I was saying before, looks good on the surface, is maybe even successful immediately, but it never gets deep enough to see exactly what's happening. Now notice that with me in three areas. Let me just point it out to you in three areas. First one is this. Twisted wisdom puts feelings against consciences. Puts feelings against consciences. When uh, Sam and I looked at the passage earlier this week to think of a craft to do together uh, for family Sunday school, she said, and this is right, isn't it? Oh, this sounds a little bit familiar. Someone standing in front of King David with a made-up story to try and make him change his mind. That sounds familiar, doesn't it, from what we've already seen in 2 Samuel. That's like Nathan in chapter 12 with the story, remember it, of the stolen sheep. You remember that story? Similarities are clear, aren't they? Uh, the story... Uh, pulled on David's knowledge of the scriptures, trying to get David to see what a biblical precedent is for dealing with someone who's stolen, effectively, the man's child, as it was seen. 
And here Joab is, is setting this story up in a similar manner, saying, let me try and echo the story of Genesis 4 from Cain and Abel, biblical precedent for not enacting capital punishment for murder, where God himself steps in to put a mark on Cain to protect him against anyone who would seek his life. But despite those similarities between you know, Nathan and the sheep and the wise woman of Tekoa and the sons, I think there's a big difference. Just think about it, and this will take a little bit of brain power, so, so think about this with me. In chapter 12, David is full of passionate feelings towards Bathsheba and sins against her and kills her husband. Nathan comes and tells that story to bring to bear and sort of rouse David's conscience against those feelings. To tell David that, yeah, okay, I know that you have strong desire for Bathsheba, but it's wrong. Listen to what your conscience says. Listen to what God's word says. But here in chapter 14, that dynamic is, is turned on its head. Notice here, David in his conscience, I think, is firmly settled against Absalom, which is why he's still in exile and why when he does return, he's excluded from the king's presence. David knows that Absalom has done wrong and that his premeditated killing of Amnon was a particularly horrific short circuit of justice. Justice which, for whatever reason, David didn't seem willing to enact himself or able to. So the woman's story wasn't so much to prick David's conscience against his feelings as to pitch his feelings against his conscience. Do you see that? The story of the sons is designed to move David with pity, to pity Absalom and to change his mind about what God's word says or his conscience said about what should be done. And this is the twisted wisdom, isn't it? God sends Nathan to stop a sinner in his tracks. Joab sends the woman of Tekoa to change the direction of justice and righteousness. You see the difference? One is an act of mercy and love. The other one is an act of manipulation and self-interest. And that's the warning here, right? Listen, the world doesn't play fair. And the twisted wisdom of human hearts seeks to change consciences by appealing to feelings and editing God's plan. Now, as I say that, I'm, I'm hoping that you might be thinking about ways that that works out in our world and our lives today. Let me give you a couple of examples that I was thinking of this week. We looked last Sunday, didn't we, at uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You know, and the twisted wisdom of the world says, do you really think that? Do you really believe that no one comes to the Father except by Jesus. Is that really right? You do realise, don't you, if that is right, if that is what you think, if that is true, what that means, doesn't it, that your lovely neighbour, my lovely non-Christian neighbour, non-Jesus-trusting neighbour, the one who you know, looks after my cat or took my, took my Amazon parcel, it means that they are going to hell, doesn't it? Does that feel right? Surely not. So we have to find a different reading of the word no one, don't we, in our twisted wisdom, pitched against our consciences and God's word. Take another example. What about the Bible's teaching on marriage? Meaning that all sexual activity outside of the marriage of one man to one woman is wrong and immoral. 
You can't say that, can you? Really? Is that really how the world feels? Does that mean that loving same-sex couples or those making private use of pornography or those cohabiting, that all of those are outside of God's plan for human sexuality? Surely not. You can't say that, can you? It doesn't feel right, does it? We have to find another way of editing those convictions because it doesn't feel right. And that's the twisted wisdom of 2 Samuel 14. That's the story of Absalom. Sorry, that's the story of the woman of Tekoa to try and bring Absalom back, where feelings override truth and compromise consciences. Secondly, twisted wisdom is impressed by appearances. Now, I want you to look down at the passage and notice, really, that verses 25 to 27 are kind of out of place. I mean, they're a strange detail to add, aren't they? Why in all that's happening are we told in such great detail about Absalom's appearance and even the weight of his hair, which, as we were working out in family Sunday school, is over two kilos, two kilograms? I have to say, I'm a little jealous. But what is the point of all of that detail? Especially given that the passage, if you, if you sort of imagine that it went from verse 24 to 28, it would flow perfectly well. Why the interruption here about Absalom's appearance? Well, I think there's another case of this twisted wisdom. Jump back in your Bible a few pages to 1 Samuel chapter 16, and I'll show you what I mean. These, they'll come up on the slides if you don't want to turn back to it. But 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. This is from when Samuel was uh, asked to anoint David as king. When they came, he, that Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God tells Samuel, doesn't he, don't be impressed by the looks of Eliab. Don't be impressed by that height. Saul had been anointed king because he looked good and it didn't go well. Don't think like that again, Samuel. And you come back to 2 Samuel chapter 14, and that's What's happening here, isn't it? The narrator is telling us that Israel are doing the opposite of what God does. So that in 2 Samuel 14, Israel have twisted wisdom to be so impressed with outward appearance that they're no longer looking at the heart. I mean, just look down at verse 25. Look how thick it's laid on. I mean, not only his hair. No one, no one was so much to be praised for his handsome appearance. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish. This is one good-looking guy. You couldn't say those words about any guy in this room, could you? But you could say it about Absalom. But the heart of Absalom, which we've seen and will see again, is selfish and arrogant and definitely opposed to David and the Lord. There's a bit more, I think, going on here as well. Uh, Hairy men in the Bible do have a bad track record. Think Esau and Samson, perhaps the writer has them in mind as well, but also I think it's a pointer forward to how Absalom will eventually die. God reverses this shallow pride in quite a humorous way as his big head and big hair become his downfall, and you'll find that in a few weeks, or you can turn to it later if you'd like to. There's something else, I think, in the mention of the three sons and the beautiful daughter called Tamar, there in verse 27. Obviously, it's the same name, isn't it, as the beautiful sister who was attacked in chapter 13. It's a sign, I think, that those events are still fresh in Absalom's mind. And it's a shadow over what's happening. And by the time you get to chapter 18, you'll find that Absalom has no heir, by which I think we're to presume that these three sons have died somehow. See, the point is this. 
twisted wisdom is easily impressed. It swaps deep truth for shallow appearances. And it happens all the time, doesn't it? You can see it in all sorts of really mundane and trivial ways. In our concern for likes on Instagram. Like, and you know that's shallow, don't you? You know that's shallow, but still it drives us. Maybe your conversations at youth group are all about what you think each other looks like. That also is very shallow, and it's a problem. But there's something spiritually worse than that also going on. Because the fact is this twisted wisdom that is only looking at the outside and what seems impressive will never understand the gospel. Why? Well, because Jesus is not impressive in any of those conventional senses. Nor is the church, nor is the Christian life. Because, and I hate to shock you this morning, but being a Christian is not about weighing your hair. Maybe some of you thought that. It's not about weighing your hair. It's not about polishing your looks. It's not about adding a, some kind of eternal insurance to your otherwise very nice middle-class life, thank you very much. It's not about living your best life now and avoiding suffering and weakness. No. Listen, real gospel wisdom sees through the shallowness of all of that and sees sin and lostness, ugliness, selfishness and takes it to the only person who can fix it, the true God of wisdom, who through his death on the cross transforms our hearts and conquers our sin. I was uh, on Friday night doing Grace a favour and helping her out at Chester CU Mission Week, and uh, a guy called Martin Povey, who's an evangelist, was uh, speaking on the Pharisee and the tax collector. He did a great job, and he said, in life you have two choices, okay? Cover up or face up. Those are the two choices. Either like a Pharisee, we try and cover up what we're really like by impressive external uh, appearances. We distract people with our flowing locks. Or we face up. We admit our sin, we admit our brokenness, and we seek restoration at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's it here. Face up, don't cover up. Finally, Twisted wisdom ignores God's king. We'll, we'll end here quickly. You can see, can't you, in these chapters that King David is basically a passenger to everything that's happening uh, in the story. Joab is manipulating David. Absalom is manipulating Joab. Going as far as burning his crops to get his own way. Interestingly, in the passage, the only real mention of the Lord is in his relationship to David. David is like an angel of the Lord in verse 17 and in verse 20. He's recognized in verse 16 as the holder of the covenant heritage of God. But for all of that, David is the only one not leading and not being listened to. A twisted wisdom leads the way. It seems to be working, doesn't it? You know, David is pulled and pushed by Joab, who's being pulled and pushed by Absalom, who seems to get just exactly what he wants in the passage. Now, of course, you and I read this account about three and a half thousand years later than it was... Uh, actually happening. And we know, don't we, that God's king is not David or his son Absalom or even an angel from heaven. We know, don't we, that God's king is Christ, the eternal divine son born as a man. And in some ways, not unlike David in 2 Samuel 14, in his life and his death, he is seemingly, at least, pulled and pushed by the agendas and schemes of those around him. 
Think of Jesus in the last moments of his life as the Jewish leaders and the Roman rulers, the puppet kings, kind of pull and push Jesus around, don't they? Seeming to get whatever they want. Jesus seems at least to be the victim of twisted wisdom. Feelings of jealousy triumph over the sanctity of life. Appearances win over hearts. The schemes of man rule the day. But, but, what happens? Here's the thing. In the great wisdom and power of God, the twisted wisdom of this world actually achieves his glorious plan. As they nail Jesus to the cross, thinking that their twisted wisdom has won a triumph, actually, they are not defeating Jesus, but glorifying him. What they intended to defeat Christ in the power of God becomes the means of salvation for his people. Jesus dies in our place for our sin, rising to new life and ascending into glory, sending his spirit to call his people home. See, here's the point, isn't it, in 2 Samuel 14. Absalom thought he was getting whatever he wanted. But he was never outside of God's sovereign rule. That doesn't remove his responsibility. We'll find that out, actually, in chapters to come. He's still... Right, responsible for his willful selfishness. But the point is that Absalom is not in charge. So let me just end with this. You and I this week, we live in a world, don't we, of twisted wisdom seeming to rule the day. I don't know how you felt as you've watched the news this week. I've been put on a, uh, a messenger group with some friends who are still in Kiev, hiding in a, a cellar in the centre of Kiev. And just listening to what's going on in their messages, it seems, doesn't it, as though twisted wisdom is winning the day. Putin, in all his power hungriness, seems not to care about life or peace or the rule of law or the boundaries of nations. But what you must remember, what I must remember, is that in the power of God, even the twisted wisdom of man is only ever able to accomplish what he sovereignly purposes. We put our hope not in man, but in God. Let me pray as I close. I'll take a few moments just to reflect and think and maybe pray in your own hearts. Maybe repent of our shallowness, of our twisted wisdom that's impressed with outward appearances and not concerned about the heart. Maybe put our confidence again in God's power to accomplish his purposes even in a world where our twisted wisdom seems to win the day. Heavenly Father, we bow the knee to you this morning and we say and confess that we actually have no wisdom of our own. All of our ideas and schemes come to nothing and only you rule and reign. Please, we pray, help us not to be so concerned with outward appearances that we neglect to repent carefully of our sin. We pray, please, that you would help us to trust that you know what you're doing in a world which seems chaotic and out of control. But we bow the knee to you. And we thank you for your glory and your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to stand and sing together. Come thou fount of every blessing. Let's stand and sing together.